Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Jonathan Rauch, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of a new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. Welcome back to Damon. Welcome back also to... Jonathan, who uh, was a guest of ours back in the days when we used to do this in person. <laughs> it's um, good to be back, even if I can't see you. Yes, like it's great to have you. Um, well, as you know, I really devoured this book. I loved it. So I'm not going to pretend um, to objectivity about it. I think it's a really important uh, contribution on a subject that is really um, uh, one of the most urgent concerns that we have, namely um, the the uh, the search for truth and uh, and how to deal with the attacks on knowledge and truth in our time. So you um, you framed it as um, analogizing the Constitution of Knowledge to the U.S. Constitution. So if if we could, let's start there with that uh, comparison. Every society, well, first of all, thank you. It's great to be here. And, and the admiration is mutual. Oh, I so you. admire and respect what, what you and the Bulwark are doing and trying to start and trying to hold firm to reality, which is not easy to do in these times. So Every society, culture, for that matter, tribe or group, has to settle some important differences of opinion about what's fact and what's nonsense, what's truth and what's false, at least for public purposes. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that. And historically, most of them are absolutely terrible. For example, a prince or a potentate or a priest will decide what's going to be true and dictate that and banish or torture or jail or even kill someone who doesn't agree. That's the standard method. Another is for people to divide into sects. Each one believes different things. They can't talk to each other. They go to war with each other or drift apart. So this is how it was done through 200,000 years of human history until about the mid-1600s, and then on to the present time when some people said, let's do it differently. Let's set up a system. It's going to be like a gigantic conversation, structured conversation, which people have to persuade each other to make knowledge. And that means that if Mona Charon thinks something is true, Jonathan Rausch has to be able to go out and check it. And if he gets a different result, it's not knowledge. And Bill Galston can do the same thing. It shouldn't matter who you are anymore. It shouldn't matter what your rank is or what your ethnicity or nationality is. Well, that works a lot like the U.S. Constitution, which is also a set of rules in which everyone can participate and follow the same rules. Similarly, it's decentralized and it forces persuasion and compromise, and it's got checks and balances. No one can impose their will on anyone else. So actually, this isn't just an analogy. Our system for making knowledge, if you look at the mechanics, as I do in the book, is actually structurally very similar to the U.S. Constitution in key ways and was designed in the same period of time by some of the same people, actually. And we rely on that today to make knowledge. It's, it's fantastically successful. It's species transforming. It put the vaccine in my arm five weeks ago that's protecting me right now from COVID. 
It's transformed our species from one in which over 2,000 years, basically, we learned almost nothing to a species in which um, we cracked the code of this virus in, in two nights. But it has enemies. It's under attack. They're trying to undermine it. They're very sophisticated, and we need to understand what they're up to. Yeah, and one of those um, you call troll epistemology. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Well, this is going to get us into Trump territory. I hope that's all right. <laughs> I, I we, guess, we've been there I before. Guess it's yeah. a bulwark. This is not exactly news. <laughs> so suppose you want to attack the system that I mentioned for a lot of reasons. It's important to realize this isn't just a marketplace of ideas. It turns out that human beings are just ineluctably biased, and we don't see our own biases, and our biases don't necessarily cancel out. So if you just put us in a big, giant, unstructured conversation, we'll listen to the people who say the things we say, and we'll agree with them, and we'll, we'll, we'll fracture, we'll go down rabbit holes. You need a lot of structure to make this work. You need a lot of experts who talk to other experts and institutions who do things like you know newsrooms with editors and journals with fact checkers and, you know, the stuff that we have to do. Um, and so suppose you wanted to undermine all that. Well, traditional censorship, that's worked in the past, doesn't really work anymore. You know, in the age of the Internet, it's very hard to do. There's a much better way to do it. It's called information warfare, uh, specifically disinformation, more specifically, as Trump's strategist Stephen Bannon famously put it, you flood the zone with shit. It turns out if you can put enough false and conspiratorial and sometimes half-true information out there and just swamp the system with it, use every channel, use every megaphone, regardless of truth value, doesn't matter if it's true or false, you can confuse and disorient and divide a lot of people. And that's what they're out to do. These are very effective tactics. They go back at least 100 years. Lenin was a master of them. Goebbels was a master of them, I argue, in the book. People say, no, it's a good thing Trump was a buffoon because otherwise he could have really undermined democracy. Well, well, guess what, folks? In the area of information warfare, he is the greatest innovator, the greatest genius since the 1930s, and you know who I mean. He has adapted Russian-style disinformation, what's called the firehose of falsehood, swamping the system with conspiracy theories and falsehoods and trolling. He has adapted those techniques to American politics with fantastic success such that right now 75% of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. Never before have we seen an American president use disinformation and run a massive disinformation campaign on the American public. That's what we've seen. Now, <clears throat> this is um... – you know, familiar territory for us, and we've been worried about this trend and, and talking about it for a long time. There's been a lot of discussion about how the um, era of information technology, the era of the Internet, is similar to the era that first um, postdated the discovery and development of the printing press, that uh, initially it wasn't you know, it wasn't used for good. I mean, well, it's both, right? But there was a lot of um, misinformation that got out and, and the spread of, of misinformation became easier. And, um, and people fought ruinous religious wars um, based on uh, the information they were getting. And, and so my question for you about this is, um, you, you say in the book that there is reason to believe that we are sort of moving into 
the second phase of this new of of how to use this technology and we're learning how to fight back against the disinformation so talk a little bit about that because it's the first sort of optimistic take that i've seen in quite some time <laughs> yeah i say maybe guardedly optimistic or or hopeful and the reason i i condition that mona is we forgot we had a constitution of knowledge. It worked so well for so long. We didn't think you needed a lot of stuff. We just thought, okay, you have a marketplace of ideas. You have free speech. Truth will emerge. It takes care of itself. And that's like forgetting that your car has an engine and not taking care of it. But if we take care of it, do we beat this? Yeah, actually, I think if we, if we understand the nature of the attacks on the system and rise to it. I think actually we squash them like a bug in the long run. And, and here's why I think that. And it goes back to what you're saying earlier. This is not the first time humanity has faced dedicated assaults on the constitution of knowledge. Um, religious organizations did that for literally hundreds of years. You know, they put Galileo in jail. Talk about information warfare. Uh, this is not the first technological break. You referred to one, which is the invention of the printing press. Another was the development of the penny press in the United States, followed by offset printing, which created this huge, you know, this this tsunami of fake news and extreme partisan news and very powerful press lords that, you know, didn't care whether what they printed was true or false. So how do we deal with this in the past? In the past, we adapt the constitution of knowledge so that we create institutions and norms and guidelines that help people use these technologies productively. So one example of this I like to use because I'm a journalist. Um, I referenced earlier that 19th century American journalism was a cesspool of extreme partisanship and fake news. Like I think it was the New York Sun wrote a five-part series about how there were, you know, life, there's life on the moon, people walking around, totally made up. How do you defeat that? Well, the public gets tired of it. It turns out to be a bad business model in the long run. And starting... A little over 100 years ago, you get the formation of the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And the first thing they do is start promulgating ethics code that say things like you have to run corrections if you're wrong. You have to uh, cite your sources. You need to talk to people. Uh, you get comment from people before you write about them. All the stuff we take for granted. You've got the establishment of journalism schools, which began promulgating these norms and standards. You began, you got the development of the Pulitzer Prize and other prizes, ironically, that was set up by one of the people that was doing the most damage. Yeah. Never mind. I'll take yeah. it. So you begin to set up these norms and incentives and rules, and people gradually see that they work, and they move into them, and that begins to restrain the outrageous conduct. So the question now, can we see the same kind of adaptations to this new information environment we're in, and also specifically this new political environment? Remember, the mastery of Trump and his propaganda machine is not – mainly the technology, it's the audacity and it's the understanding of how to occupy our minds and swamp the system. I think we're already starting to see some positive adaptations and changes. I would argue that the 2020 election was far harder to manipulate in terms of information warfare than 2016. We were wide open to it. We were totally vulnerable. Did not happen in anything like the same way in 2020. And that's because I think people are wising up. Journalists are beginning to understand what's going on. Academics now are studying around the world disinformation networks, how they work. They've got early warning systems. Facebook and Twitter are starting to look at changes in their products and also in their policies that make it harder 
uh, to troll everybody and spread conspiracy theories. It's lots of stuff on lots of fronts. Mm-hmm. But that's how you solve this, and all society responds. That's what works if anything works. I'm not saying it's automatic. I'm not saying this solves itself. We have to be aware of the problem and the danger. But if we are, yeah, I think we can get there. Okay. Um, I'm going to open it up to the rest of the panel in yeah. just a second, but I think we should also just say a word um, about emotional safetyism um, and that side of things, the, the, the threats to um, the constitution of knowledge that emanate more from the left. Yeah, that's the other half of of the book. Um, I'm sorry to filibuster. No, no. We, These are, we this want is complicated stuff, and I haven't yet figured out how to <laughs> – how to do it the, the usual authorial bumper sticker way. <laughs> um, so what is information warfare? It's Here's how I define it. It's manipulating and organizing the social and media environments for political gain, specifically to dominate, divide, disorient, and demoralize your opponents. That's what the Russians have been doing under Putin. That is what Trump has been doing. There are lots of ways to do it. And here's another way to do it, not flooding the zone with shit. But suppose you can figure out ways to intimidate large numbers of people so that they won't, um, they won't express their real opinions on a lot of views. Well, that has some very interesting effects. One is, of course, it silences those people. We see that on college campuses. Most college campuses, most people are not radical leftists. They're not, all, they're not woke militants. They may be on the left, but polls show that they actually want to have a free and open conversation. But Polls show they don't want to do that because they're afraid they'll get hit with some kind of social sanction, what's now called canceling. But there's this other effect, too, which is more subtle, more interesting. Alexis de Tocqueville actually points this out in America, 1835. It's not new, which is that we look to each other as humans to decide what's true and what's false, what's thinkable, what's unthinkable. So if you can game the environment by intimidating enough people so there's a lot of self-censorship. I'll look to you, Mona, to decide what we can talk about and what might actually be true. You'll be looking to me, but we'll both have been in this distorted and skewed environment where one point of view is not being heard. And we'll actually change our opinions to reflect that. You can actually manipulate public opinion by manipulating the environment to chill one side of the argument. So that's one of the reasons the Soviet Union goes to such trouble to keep dissidents quiet, Um, No one really knows what anyone else thinks for sure, which means they're confused and demoralized and often misled. Well, cancel culture comes along. It discovers this marvelous new technology, the Internet. It says, wait a minute, we don't have to win the argument on the merits. What if we can silence a lot of people by harassing them, threatening, threatening their reputations, livelihoods, just making it so high friction for them to speak out that they'll say it's not worth it, we won't bother. They'll chill themselves. We won't have to do it for them. And then we dominate the conversation, even though we're just a minority, and even though we don't, we can't really defend our views on the merits, and that's what's happened. This, I argue, also, like the other thing we talked about, this is also sophisticated and powerful information warfare. It's not just some activists who are, who are acting out, and we need to understand what they're doing. Okay, excellent. Um, who else would like in on this conversation? The floor is open. There is so much in this book that I not only agree with, but passionately endorse, uh, that I feel a little bit churlish uh, raising a theoretical issue or two. But uh, 
you know, John and I are colleagues and friends, so I'm sure he'll understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I use the word mentor in describing you, Bill. I don't know if you well, accept that, but that's no, I don't. I, I don't, and even if I was at one point, uh, <laughs> I think it's fair to say I am no longer. Uh, at any rate, uh, I'm the son of a scientist. I grew up in the constitution of knowledge. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I know when the system is at its best. I know when it malfunctions, and the your description of its corrective mechanisms is absolutely accurate. Here is my question. Is a political community a truth-seeking community in the same way that a scientific community is? And let me frame this question by referring to one of your heroes in this book, namely Abraham Lincoln. Now, Lincoln clearly believed that the most important constituting document of the United States of America was the Declaration of Independence. And in the Declaration of Independence, we famously, we famously encountered the phrase, the phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That is to say, not in need of discussion, beyond discussion. Now, suppose someone comes along and says, well, you Americans think that all human beings are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. But in fact, here are 11 objections that I, as a philosopher, raise to that. And, uh, you know, and if you agree that I'm right, then you have to agree that the founding of the United States was based not on truth, but on myth. Uh, so how does a political community deal with the fact that its foundings are a mixture of truth and myth? Well, a lot to say about that, and I don't want to filibuster because I've been filibustering too much. But, but first I'll fight the premise a little, which is I think self-evident in the context of the Declaration doesn't mean we don't have any arguments for it. You'll just have to take our word for it. I think it means we don't have space for it because, as you know, by uh, 1776, there's more than a century of deep thinking and argumentation justifying that, that clause. Uh, and there's been a whole lot more since. So that's a small caveat. The big response, I, I, presumably a point on which you don't, don't disagree, is that no, a political community is not a truth-seeking community per se. It's not doing the same thing science and journalism and, for that matter, uh, a lot of law and government are doing, which is trying to find the right answers to stuff. But it is embedded in an epistemic community, and it cannot function in a world where the difference between lies and truth does not matter and where politicians feel at liberty to treat the difference between lies and truth as just purely instrumental, um, as, for example, Donald Trump and the Republican Party now do. And that's why I think one of the civic virtues, the Republican virtues, which Adams and Franklin and Washington and Madison and the others warned us we needed, is some degree of truthfulness. We need to be educated about our civic system and we need to understand some, some functional truths. If we don't have those, we sink. So the short answer is no, politics does not have to be truth-seeking, but it does have to be truth-friendly. Linda. Well, um, I have not read the book yet, uh, but I have read the National Affairs piece that I think was probably the uh, germ of the book. Um, and 
my question is not nearly so elevated as uh, Bill's was, but or my concern. Um, you know, watching what's happening first uh, in Arizona and what's now, you know, taking place in other states around the country, my sense is that um, there isn't any kind of a break on truthfulness and truth-seeking for certain segments of the political population. And by the way, it, it isn't just a problem on the right. I think it's also uh, a problem uh, on the left, uh, and we don't talk about it as much, but, you know, even questions about uh, policing, and I guess we're going to get to that later, uh, the effectiveness of police, whether or not the number of murders of black men uh, by the police um, is way out of proportion. Um, for example, uh, all of these things suggest that there are some questions we don't want to ask, and we live in our own little worlds uh, in our belief systems. And if we don't think we're going to get the right answers, we're afraid to ask those questions. And so I just wanted to get Jonathan's sense of, of uh, what do you do about a problem uh, like Arizona? Well, Arizona is a problem, but I would generalize it. This will sound partisan. It's really not intended that way. I've voted for a lot of Republicans. I'm center-right in my politics. It breaks my heart to say this, uh, but it's not just Arizona. The Republican Party has become a uh, propaganda outlet, propaganda organ. Under Trump, it has discovered that if you push large quantities of lies, or at least allow them to go unchallenged, you can get positive political results from that. One, one case of that is, I guess for listeners who don't know, is that Arizona Republicans ordered a, an audit, a, a recount of the election returns that are based on completely false premises, that there was a problem with the vote, even though there had already been two independent audits. And, and then they went out and found this Republican, this company that, that had endorsed conspiracy theories called Cyber Ninjas to do it. And, and this is really not a recount. This is a, a propaganda um, propaganda play. Um, this is in, intended to embed the conspiracy theory more broadly, and that's exactly what it's doing. So what do we do about that? A lot to say about that. I'll keep it short. One, you keep Donald Trump and other Republicans of his ilk out of office to the extent that you possibly can. They will use political office and all the powers that go with it to pump disinformation out on a very large scale. We know that now. Not sure my saying that will influence anyone's vote, but it should. Second, you need a media that's much smarter about what's going on here. And that's actually happening. In 2016, if Trump said something, um, everyone covered it immediately. Um, now people are getting a lot better at contextualizing what's going on. They're a lot smarter about disinformation. So we're starting to see some of that. Um, no magic solutions there because, you know, you, you've got to cover the Arizona recount. That's why it's there to generate news headlines. A third thing that you need to do, education. You've got to, you've got to make the public more aware of what's going on. It is harder to manipulate a public that understands that it's being manipulated. A big reason these tactics work, not the only reason, but a big reason that they work is that they take you by surprise, they manipulate you. You know, Trump does outrageous things on Twitter every day, well aware that he's occupying our brains, he's trolling us, he's triggering our outrage circuits so that he can dominate the headlines. That's a little bit harder once we wise up to the fact that this is what he's doing. 
Another thing you can do, and this is also happening, social media has been part of the problem. It has been, I argue, inadvertently actively hostile to truth because it's about gathering eyeballs. It's a great environment for trolling and disinformation and conspiracy theories. There are a lot of really good people trying to figure that out, trying to make changes in the platforms, not just the policies, but the actual products, which is where I think the rubber meets the road. Twitter now sounds like a small thing, but these kinds of experiments make a difference. If you try to retweet something without reading, uh, reading the link, you get a banner. I got this like yesterday. Are you sure you want to retweet this without reading it? They're changing the algorithms um, to better reflect what's, you know, viral conspiracy theory to be harder to game. It's going to be a lot of stuff like that. But Linda, unfortunately, what everyone wants is here's the law you pass. Here's the change you make. And it isn't like that. This is a kind of wising up and adaptation on multiple levels of society to give ourselves what you could think of as a better immune system against this, this new viral challenge. But it's going to be lots of different things going on at once if we succeed. Does that help? Because I know it's not the, it, it, the quick it, answer that people look for. It, it helps, um, but it at least leaves me very worried about the near-term future. You should be worried. I'm very worried, too. I'm, I'm terribly worried, too. It encourages me that we're seeing some Republicans stand up to it. That's very important. Um, there's experiments that show that people are much less likely to, to conform to and to believe fake stuff and to be influenced by others, if even one or two other people in their peer group stand up and say this is false, that makes it a lot safer for me to say that too, to have some company. So Liz Cheney loses her leadership post, but she's also providing an anchor to reality. Stephen Richards, the Maricopa County recorder in Arizona, just elected in November. He is out there saying this recount, so-called recount, is a fraud. Um, he has said that despite the fact that it will not redound to his advantage as a Republican in Arizona. Of all five county commissioners in Maricopa County said the same thing, including the four out of five who are Republicans. This is super important. Maybe not immediately because it doesn't change people's minds right away, but it tells those people who want to be anchored in reality, there are other voices out there. You're not going crazy. I just wanted to make the point that there's a, um, a psychological study that's exactly on point with Jonathan's last point, namely um, the researchers uh, put people in a room with others, everyone else except for the pers one person was a confederate of the researchers, and they gave them a series of problems like, you know, two plus two equals five. Uh, I mean, you know, what's two plus two? And everybody else in the room would say five, and uh, except for the person who was the subject of the experiment, and they found that, I mean, that's not the actual example, but you get the idea, um, that most people, when everyone else in the room is saying something even so obviously wrong, the social pressure is such that the person will almost always go along with the majority in their answers, except if there's one other person in the room who says, no, two plus two is four, then the person, the, the experimentee, uh, will, will stick to their guns. So it's, uh, it's exactly the point that Jonathan was making. Yeah. yeah, I was just talking about those experiments the other day. And it's just very important to remember that. People say, how will you ever convince these masses of people who believe that there was a gigantic fraud in the, in the 2020 election? And the answer is you don't have to convince masses of people. 
you need to convince enough people to start providing anchors to reality so that you can start changing the direction of that conversation. Yeah, we've gone a little long on this segment. It's completely worth it. Um, I would just uh, commend the book to our listeners. Again, it's called The Constitution of Knowledge. Uh, where can people get it, Jonathan? Everywhere. Anywhere everywhere. and everywhere. All right. All the online places, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Uh, you can get it in bookstores. It's coming out on be out on June 22nd, and uh, between now and then, on I think it's June 9th, we're doing a big event with me and Steven Pinker, and if you buy the book, you get a ticket to the event. Uh, Fantastic. You can find that on Twitter. Great, and, uh, great. Brookings and elsewhere. Here's the thing. Oh, uh, Damon, I forgot to come to you. Sorry. Um, did you want to just add anything to this part of the conversation? Uh, not not too much. I mean, I, I would just say uh, that I, I'm sorry. I also have not read the book, as Linda said earlier about herself. So I, I, I figured I would hang back and let Jonathan talk about it because it sounds so great and so important. I want listeners to hear what's in the book, uh, and I, I will be reading it uh, very eagerly. I mean, I guess my, my, my general standpoint on these questions is to agree with you on pretty much everything, but to be a little <laughs> to, but to be a little bit more uh, uh, pessimistic uh, in the end because I, I think in, in a way the best historical context for what you described is the point you made uh, several minutes ago about how the development of kind of journalistic norms uh, of, of truth-telling and editorial ethics and uh, fact-checking. These things uh, were developed at a specific point in time, and we, they seem to be dying now, which might mean that we're reverting to a more of a kind of American historic norm with the mid-20th, the long mid-20th century being a kind of outlier. Um, so in that way, I see our current moment as a kind of reversion to a kind of a, an American berserk, to, uh, to quote a famous novelist who once described that, the indigenous American berserk uh, facilitated by the rise of social media. And so I, I, I would love to, but have never lived through the process of such norms being conjured out of nothing and instituted. Um, I, I, my experiences of them already being there and then collapsing. So uh, I agree with you entirely that that's exactly what we need is for them to be reconstituted. But, uh, you it's, know, yeah, I have to hard. take it's... a leap of faith to believe that it's actually going to happen. So, Damon, that's such an important point. And it's really hard to write a book like this because you want to give people reasons for optimism. And we have a lot, but you don't want them to be complacent. And the answer to your question depends on what happens next and depends on the choices people may make next. There is deterioration in the media's commitment, I think, to the constitutional knowledge, mainstream media. Fox News, I think, is, is already out the door working a different, a different model, something more like a propaganda model. But this deterioration is partly driven because newsrooms don't have enough ideological diversity to check their bias. They're becoming somewhat more aware of it, but it's an ongoing problem. The bigger reason, frankly, is economic, because following all these rules and strictures and checking everything and going back to people and having, you know, having layers of editors, it's all way more expensive than just chasing eyeballs by running whatever comes in the door, you know, even if it's a press release from basically a Russian, from Russian trolls. And we don't have solutions to those problems yet. And so I'm not going to tell you that the point you make that there's an easy way out of this and that, you know, 
there's magic reconstitution of norms and institutions, we will, we will have to make a deliberate effort, as was done 100 years ago, to make this stuff happen. Uh, if I may just add a bon mot from your book, um, which is probably apt here, um, where you were talking about uh, the, the difficulties that, that attend this kind of a project, and um, you, said, you quoted a wag as saying, where developing the rule of law is concerned, the first five centuries are the hardest. <laughs> So, all right, um, let us move on now to um, the rising levels of crime and the implications uh, for our society and for our politics. Uh, crime uh, was the most potent issue, arguably, or among the most potent issues for Republicans in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. Uh, and we have since then had a period of really remarkable crime drops that nobody is absolutely sure uh, what to uh, what accounts for it. But in any event, it seems to be ending. Um, and uh, we have seen uh, really quite a large explosion in the murder rate that happened in the year 2020. Um, so I'm going to turn to you, Linda, and ask, um, do you think this represents a vulnerability for the Democrats? Absolutely. Probably their single biggest vulnerability. I mean, first of all, uh, while the cr crime is rising, it seems to be rising more in big cities. Those big cities are almost universally uh, run by Democrats. And uh, the... Uh, the the uh, demonstrations last year and, you know, what people call the racial reckoning that occurred last summer um, and the reaction to uh, police violence uh, against black men have led to less policing. And so I think that Democrats are going to have to deal with this. It is interesting. Um, you know, it, it I, I think on a national scale, it's going to backfire. Uh, on the Democrats. It, I think it's one of the biggest threats uh, to Biden and uh, to a, a Democrat-controlled House. Um, and I think will also make it difficult to uh, for the Democrats to expand uh, in, in the Senate. But, you know, there was a, an election, um, I think it was just last week, uh, in Philadelphia. And the uh, district attorney who was running for election there, Larry Krasner, was reelected, uh, despite the fact that Philadelphia itself has had one of the largest increases uh, in crime. I think it had um, a 30-year high with 500 homicide victims in 2020. And Krasner has been one of the most outspoken police reform uh, district attorneys in the country, um, very much embraced, I think, uh, by uh, the Democrat establishment, and uh, and yet he was reelected. So it's not clear to me exactly how this is going to play out. I mean, you may end up having uh, big cities uh, not being affected in terms of their elected leadership, but uh, those who don't live in the big cities, in, the, in suburban America in particular, looking to the uh, big cities and being very concerned and worried about what's happening there and fearing that what is happening there is going to spill out into their communities. And that's going to hurt the Democrats. Uh, and I, I think it's, I think it's a, one of the number 
uh, one or two issues that are, are going to play out in the 2022 and, and even 2024 election. Damon, um, the big spike in murders that happened in 2020, of course, did not happen on the Democrats' watch, at least not at the national level. Trump was in the White House. Um, and admittedly, it was um, against a, a low baseline since we've had a 20-year decline in crime rates. So we're still, even though we've had a spike in murders, for example, we're still not anywhere near the levels that we saw like in the early 90s. Um, uh, still, um, there is no question that the Democratic Party is the one that had activists saying defund the police. Um, and, uh, you know, la after the 2018 midterms, uh, Abigail Spanberger, who represents a um, swing district in Virginia that actually went for Trump, um, you know, excoriated her colleagues uh, for uh, permitting that kind of talk to to uh, get to, to get going, and she said it damaged many of many Democratic candidates. Yeah, I mean, I I think there, as with everything else, twenty uh, twenty is a is a strange year, and we really won't know for sure uh, for a little while uh, whether this proves to be kind of uh, a new late sixties into the nineties, the early nineties, where we had a, a, a massive increase in crime that persisted for a long time and had all kinds of political and social ramifications, uh, including white flight into the suburbs and, and, uh, you know, it, we're remaking the ideological breakdown of the parties to a certain extent. The whole phenomenon of Reagan Democrats had a lot to do with this. Um, so big things could happen, but it, it is early. 2020 was a very strange year. We're still kind of in the long 2020 in the sense that uh, the economy has not completely rebounded. A lot of people are still at home, out of work more than they uh, used to be. And then the, the reverberations following from the George Floyd murder a year ago uh, continue throughout the culture. So all of these things could be generating what could turn out to be a spike that diminishes within another year. And if that's true, hopefully this, this would recede as an issue. But if it doesn't, I agree, of course, with what Linda was saying completely that this is, a, and with you too, Mona, that this is a, a potential immense uh, vulnerability for Democrats, despite what James Carville, uh, the, the uh, famed um, Clinton campaign manager from 1992, he, he wrote, a, a, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, a column uh, within the last day or so in which he took a, a very hard, you know, strong Democratic line saying that, well, all this happened on Trump's watch and he personally was a criminal and he, in, and he encouraged criminality and he pardoned all the criminals in his administration. It was a, it's a monumental, great act of spin, this column of his, um, <laughs> where, where, yes, the, all of that is true as far as it goes, but the fact is that pretty much everyone recognizes that uh, crime at the level of street crime is the most local of, uh, of issues. Now, the federal government can do things like allocate money for hiring new police officers and things like that, so there could be a role for Biden uh, and the and Democrats in Congress to help if the spike turns out to be more long-lasting or gets worse. But the, the fact is that um, it's not as if 
uh, Trump was like actively encouraging people to go out and murder people on the street and then refusing to lock them up. He was also a uh, very harsh law and order uh, 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 president and candidate on the stump in 2020. So that's at, at most uh, kind of mixed bag. So in general, Democrats always recognize that this is a vulnerability of theirs, their stance on crime, although I think uh, having all kinds of things to recommend it uh, does tend to kind of muddy the waters and look for kind of root causes and seeking to uh, you know, downplay the harshness of the criminal justice system, which again, I think has a lot to go for it in moral terms. But when the rubber meets the road and we're dealing with people being murdered on the streets of American cities, uh, that that isn't going to play well for more than about five seconds because people are going to want to just try to make sure they don't get shot while uh, going sightseeing in uh, Times Square, as happened a few weeks ago uh, with a tourist in New York. So, uh, you know, I, I come, despite the fact that Rudy Giuliani became kind of a lunatic, uh, I got my, one of my early jobs was working as a speechwriter for Rudy at the time when he had a lot to do with the drop in crime in New York. So I get to revert to my my old 1990s uh, sort of center-right self, I guess, on that issue. <laughs> so I, I, I too noticed the the Carville uh, piece, and uh, and I, it just reminded me of um, a little bit of the Jesse Jackson uh, presidential campaign in the 80s, where he was, you know, trying to say that crime in the suites was uh, more important than crime in the streets, uh, which is something that just doesn't go over that well with most with most people. But it um, rhymes. Yeah, well, <laughs> Jesse was Jesse was known for that. Um, but um, but but Bill, this is this this crime spike comes at a really it, it can never come at a good time, but particularly now when we have had this spate of um, police brutality cases of black men being unjustifiably killed uh, by police uh, when there's this huge movement uh, in the Democratic Party to reform the criminal justice system. Um, this requires them to tread really carefully to make sure that they're getting their message out. And it's, and it's, it's going to be tough when the environment is, are you tough on crime or soft on crime? Right. I mean, there's, it's going to be hard to say, well, we need reform of the police, but we don't need to defund the police. I couldn't agree more, Mona. Uh, you know, the clash between defend the police and defund the police is a, is a dialogue of the death that really doesn't meet the current challenge. Uh the people who the, the people who say that uh, that police conduct is is not fair and equitable uh, have a lot of evidence on their side, and that needs to change. On the other hand, the proposition that you're going to solve the problem by removing or relaxing the police presence is not one that is endorsed even by the members of the community who are most affected by the police abuses. Senior members of the Democratic Party know that very well, uh, from the president on down, who smelled a rat almost a year ago when 
when the slogan of defunding the police you know, first began to get currency. Uh, so I think sensible Democrats know what needs to be done. And it is under the heading of this anodyne word reform. But that is the only sensible way to talk about this problem, right? Uh, removing police from the community or transferring their funding to social workers is not going to solve the problem. And everybody knows it. Um, yeah, I, in my most recent column, I actually um, cited polling showing that uh, defund the police doesn't have support even in the African-American community. And if you ask the question as abolishing the police, you get outright majorities uh, opposed. Um, so there is uh, there's no reason to think that this this slogan has any kind of backing outside of the very most, you know, radical or woke precincts. But Jonathan, I'll come to you, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, Bill Galston talked about sensible Democrats. Some Democrats aren't so sensible, like the ones in San Francisco, uh, where in 2014, they put, I'm speaking now of the voters who passed a ballot measure. Actually, it was all of the voters of California, but uh, San Francisco seems to have suffered the most. Anyway, they, they reclassified thefts up to $950 as misdemeanors. And um, in San Francisco now, apparently, Walgreens is having to close 17 stores because of the massive shoplifting problem that they're having. People just walk in, help themselves, and head out the door. And the owners and the managers of these stores are, have instructed their employees not to intervene when people shoplift because they're afraid of violence. And uh, what kind of comment about that would be both <laughs> constructive and non-obvious? <laughs> well, <laughs> the, <laughs> um, you know, not everything, um, when it comes to being tough, tougher on crime, let us say, not everything amounts to encouraging police to behave <laughs> like pigs, right? I mean, some things are just common sense. Well, I'll broaden... <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an assist here by broadening your question okay. um, and wondering, you know, Bill Galston lived through this in the 1980s and 90s, Democrats clawing their way back to somewhere near the cultural center on issues like crime and other issues of the culture and how hard that was to do and the famous sister soldier moment under Bill Clinton and the crime bill, which for all its flaws, was endorsed by the Congressional Black Caucus. So he did that work, and he can tell you it was not easy, and he can tell you it succeeded, and now it looks like it's all going to have to get done all over again because a new generation has come along that didn't live through that. Um, I, I share other people's concern about the, the crime issue per se, but actually – I don't think it's just the crime issue per se. I think Republican strategy, I think we all know this actually, is they don't really have much to say about anything else, but on the cultural issues more broadly, on crime, on how many sexes are there, on are we canceling Dr. Seuss? Uh, is the internet basically a uh, free fire zone against conservatives? On all of the stuff they think that they can counteract Joe Biden's economic progressive agenda. And they're betting that no matter how much money the Democrats put in voters' pockets, Dr. Seuss and, and crime waves or alleged crime waves will outweigh it. And unfortunately, they may be right, 
And I'm just concerned that, you know, not enough Democrats are really quite concerned enough about that. I am going to call an audible and um, eliminate our third topic for today because we've run long, but uh, we'll get back to that another time. And we'll move directly to our final segments, highlight or low light of the week. And we'll start with you, Linda. I'm not sure whether it's a highlight or a low light. Um, it is a column uh, that uh, by Megan McArdle in today's Washington Post. And she writes about a decision that was made at the University of North Carolina uh, on tenure, and it involves Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, uh, for those who don't know, is the impetus behind the 1619 Project. Apparently, she was uh, appointed at the University of North Carolina in a position that generally is a tenured position, but there was... um, a rejection of that uh, by the trustees of the college who decided that she will not be uh, given tenure. She will not have a tenure track position. And uh, I think Megan, who of course has been on this program before, talks about it in terms of, well, this was the rights attempt to engage in cancel culture, uh, something about which the right complains mightily. Um, And I think that's true, but I'm not at all sure that, um, you know, the decision not to give tenure to somebody who lacks a PhD and who um, has been the author uh, or the impetus at least behind a a very controversial uh, uh, curriculum for the school um, having to do with race and history is necessarily a bad decision. So haven't made up my mind whether it's good or bad, but it is noteworthy. Okay, Damon Linker. Well, um, instead of pointing to something I've read or seen or listened to uh, over the last week or so, I, I I just want to drop something down in into the podcast here for future discussion, which is inevitable. We will be discussing it perhaps even next week. Uh, the uh, Biden administration's first proposed federal budget, which is uh, going to be officially announced tomorrow on Friday, but of course it leaked today early. Uh, It turns out that it is going to be roughly $6 trillion, which uh, is a 25% rise from uh, the last uh, approved Trump budget, which was $4.79 trillion. And the budget uh, assumes, as they always do, kind of out into the future, that by the year 2031, that the federal budget would be $8.2 trillion, which would be 37% higher than what the Biden administration is proposing for next year, over the next 10 years. Um I just want to say, uh, wow, that's a lot of money. Um, this is World War II level spending, not as a you know four-year emergency measure of fighting a war on two fronts around the world uh, from a standing start, which is what we were doing in World War II, but a new normal. This is Joe Biden uh, attempting to uh, the latest sign of the Biden administration's attempt to sort of pivot us into an era of federal spending, the likes of which we we really haven't ever seen unless you go back to the New Deal and where it started from and where it ended. But of course, 
we live right now with the welfare state that is itself a product of the New Deal and everything that's come since. So it's on top of that. Um, I'm not going to come out against this and say that uh, I, I oppose it on principle because I don't. I'm a pragmatist about these things, and I do think we've neglected our public sphere of remarkable amount over recent decades, and there's a lot that needs to be done. By the same token, uh, again, it's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, so much to discuss and ponder in future uh, podcasts. But that, I, I think can. it's a major, major deal. I can guarantee that we will be discussing this in future Big to Differs. Yes. Bill Galston. We spent a fair amount of time uh, in this podcast talking about the possible impact of crime on the 2022 elections and beyond. Uh, a number of Democratic pollsters have noted with alarm that Republicans seem energized at the grassroots level uh, and that Democrats are anything but. The Supreme Court could turn that around in one stroke. As most of the listeners probably know, uh, it has decided to grant cert, that is, give a hearing and make a decision to and make a decision about the Mississippi abortion bill, uh, which flatly contradicts Roe v. Wade. And this is a possible opportunity for the Supreme Court simply to overrule Roe, or at the very least, to neuter it. That would be a terrific way of getting Democrats, especially Democratic women, and not just Democratic women, by the way, into the streets. Uh, and so the political context for the 2022 midterm election could be defined by the Supreme Court. Great. Crime, abortion, how much else can we, how many other hot button uh, cultural fights can we have in one Back year? Back to the All future. Right. <laughs> We've seen this movie before. Yeah. Jonathan Rauch. Well, I didn't, I didn't come prepared, but I want to, we can do highlights, right? Not just low lights. Absolutely. Or just lights. <laughs> so this didn't technically happen within the last seven days because I believe we're now on the 10th day. But I want to go back to something I said earlier and just call out as a highlight. Local officials in Maricopa County, Arizona, that's Phoenix, including my friend Stephen Richard, the county recorder, and all four Republicans on the county commission stepped forward to call the so-called audit, the partisan audit, the unnecessary audit of the election returns in Arizona to call them a sham, to say enough already. They didn't do that because it was in their political interest because it's not in their political interest. They all put a target on their back and Stephen Richer has needed protection, as have a lot of other local officials. You mean not just a political target, a literal target. A literal target. Lots of election officials now have needed to go undercover uh, leave their houses at various times. And we just all have to remember those are the acts that need to be memorialized and praised by all of us. That's what's keeping our democracy afloat. So thank you, Stephen Richard. Thank you, Republican and Democratic commissioners, uh, supervisors of Maricopa County. Amen. Um, I would like to draw attention this week 
to another podcast. Uh, it is called All the President's Lawyers, hosted by Josh Barrow, and it features uh, attorney Ken White, who also blogs under the pseudonym Popet. And each week they discuss, it began because there were so many legal issues in the Trump years, but uh, but they're continuing it. Um, and it, uh, it addresses legal matters in an entertaining and highly informative fashion. And so this week, for example, they um, dug into the question of why the Justice Department under Biden is um, is uh, fighting an order, a judge's order, appealing a judge's order to release the Barr memo about uh, about the Mueller report. You might think, well, why would they do that? Um, and uh, I, I invite you to listen to the podcast, but uh, but you know, uh, spoiler. Um, the uh, the reason is that this Justice Department really is concerned about possibly setting a bad precedent, even though it would be in the political interests of the Democrats to release this memo if it proves that Barr behaved badly or or illegally. Um, but the the precedent that it would set of uh, of releasing uh, memos that are internal matters in the Justice Department uh, would not be a good one. So that is interesting. They also touched on the, the decision by the Manhattan DA to impanel a grand jury looking into President former President Trump's possible illegal acts and throw a lot of cold water on everybody who's thinking they're going to see the former president led off in handcuffs anytime soon, and so forth. So. It's a it's very informative and also um, frequently very witty uh, podcast, and I recommend it. And with that, I want to thank our guest, Jonathan Rauch, and thank you all for listening. We will return next week, as every week.